0: Welcome back to Nurturing Financial Freedom. I'm John Jagay, joined again by Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert from Birch Financial. Gentlemen, always good to be with you. Great to be here, Jag. Happy September. Always a pleasure, Jag.
1: The summer is uh, rapidly drawing to a close, and what a a strange summer it was,
0: but we'll see what the rest of 2021 brings for us. Someday, we'll be telling future generations about that summer of 2020 and 2021. (laughs) Getting into the fall months now, and I know people are thinking about their financial future. Sometimes that last quarter of the year is time to reevaluate things. We're going to talk about an often overlooked side of people's portfolios today, and that's bonds. We talk a lot about stocks on the show. We're going to talk about bonds here in just a bit, but before we do that, Ed, let me turn to you and ask uh, what's happened to the markets over the past month as we record today on September 15th.
2: Yeah, our last recording was August 17th, and since then, it's been a pretty good time for investors. The S&P 500 grew by 0.5% over that period. You know That index represents large-cap U.S. companies. The Russell 2000 Index, which represents small-cap U.S. equities, grew at a faster pace, 2.2% over that period. And the MSCI IFA index, which represents international stocks, grew by one and a half percent. And treasury bond rates stayed pretty flat through that period. The 10-year treasury rate was 1.26% on August 17th, and today is 1.28%.
1: I should add that all this uh, data is courtesy of FactSet.
0: Well, thanks for that, Ed and Alex. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about bonds today. And it seems with all this talk about the stock market, we certainly saw some ups and downs throughout the pandemic. uh, Bonds don't get as much attention. So today we're going to talk about what bonds are, what risks are involved, why they're an important part of a balanced investment portfolio. Ed, let me come back to you. What are bonds? What are the risks involved?
2: So first of all, it's important to understand exactly what bonds are. Bonds are loans. You're lending money to someone else and they are promising to pay you back with interest. And the different categories of bonds are essentially uh, based on who is borrowing the money from you. So, for example, if you buy a treasury bond, Jag, you're actually just lending money to the United States government. Buy a CD, you're lending money to a bank. If you buy a corporate bond, you're lending money to a company. And if you buy a municipal bond, you're lending money to a municipality. Got it. The way that it works is you buy the bond, you're promised a rate of interest as the lender, and a return of your principal at a predetermined maturity date when the bond's issued. And you then have the right to either hold that bond until it matures or sell it to someone else in the meantime. Pretty simple stuff, right?
0: I like the way you're explaining it. I'm able to keep up with you so far. Keep going. So,
2: as always... The devil is in the details, though. Not all bonds are created the same. And there are risks involved in an asset class that people usually think of as as somewhat boring. And a lot of investors don't understand those risks. So, what we want to do is kind of highlight three of them today. The first risk is what we call credit risk. And this is the easiest type of bond risk for most people to understand. You lend money to someone else or an entity. And they don't pay you back. That's credit risk, right? Yeah. And oftentimes, bondholders only get a portion of their principal back or sometimes nothing when a company or municipality goes through bankruptcy. It can happen, and it has happened. We saw it happen to mortgage-backed bonds in 2008 when they were packaged together. um, A lot of high-risk mortgages packaged together. People who own bonds in companies that went bankrupt, like Lehman Brothers, Enron, or WorldCom, so there is always the possibility that something happens and you don't get all of your principal back. And the way that bond credit is determined is by independent rating agencies. The two most popular are Moody's and Standard and Poor's. And what they do is they assign credit ratings to every bond that's issued. A higher credit rating means a lower interest payment. A lower credit rating usually means a higher payment. So think about it this way, Jag. Let's say you're a borrower, right? And you have a very good credit history, very good credit rating. You can borrow money at a lower rate than me if I have a very low credit rating and a history of bankruptcy or defaults, right? Got it, yeah, it's like buying a car or or getting a mortgage, right? That's exactly right. The higher the risk of not getting repaid, the more interest, right? Simple as that. And one lesson we want everybody to take from this episode today, in any type of bond or fixed income product where you're essentially lending money to somebody else or to an entity, there is no free lunch. If somebody has to pay more interest to borrow money, there is a reason behind it. Yes. So if you look at two comparable bonds, let's say you know they both have a, a five-year maturity. If one pays a much higher interest rate than the other, there's a reason. And that reason is generally credit risk, okay? So first type of risk, very simple, credit risk. So you always have to look at who you're lending the money to, what kind of bonds you're buying, and how much credit risk is there. Got it. Second type of risk is called interest rate risk. And this is a concept that's hard for a lot of people to understand, so I'll try to explain it simply. But bond prices and interest rates move inversely like a seesaw, okay? And the reason why is because bond interest payments are fixed when the bond is issued. So if rates rise, existing bond prices drop because new bonds that are then issued are more attractive. And I'll give you an example to lay this out and explain it. So let's say today, Jag, you go out and you buy a 10-year treasury bond that pays roughly 1.3%, okay? Mm -hmm. You pay $10,000 for it you get $130 per year in interest, 1.3%, right? At the end of the 10 years, if you hold that bond, you get your 10 grand of principal back, okay? Yeah. So let's say it's a year from now and comparable treasury bonds, because interest rates have gone up, pay 3%. You have the option to sell that bond before maturity, right? hmm But if you come to me and say, Ed, would you like to buy my 1.3% treasury bond? I'd say yeah, yeah, I do want to buy it, but I'm not paying you 10 grand for it because I can go out and get a new one that pays 3%. Why am I going to buy yours that pays 1.3 unless you lower your price? Ah, okay. So, I might say, Jag, I'll give you hypothetically $9,400 for it. So then you have two options. Your first option is to sell it to me at a lower principal than what you initially invested, which means you could take a loss on the bond, right? Yeah. Or you could hold it for nine more years until maturity. But as you hold it till maturity, you're going to be getting paid less interest than what other people are getting at that point, right? Right, yeah, okay. So that is the second risk, interest rate risk, risk of rates rising. And either you take a haircut to sell your bond to somebody else, or you're just getting paid a below market interest rate, okay? hmm So first risk, credit risk. Second risk, interest rate risk, risk of rates rising. Yep. The third risk is what we call reinvestment risk. And this is a risk that plays out a lot when interest rates decline. And this is the risk that when your bond is either called away or matured, that you can't get a good one because rates have declined, okay? Okay. And many bonds have what's called a call provision. And what a call provision means is essentially is that the borrower can essentially refinance their debt if they choose at a given point in the future and pay you back your money at a predetermined time prior to maturity. Just like, you know, when interest rates drop and a lot of us refinanced our mortgages? Yep bond issuers can kind of do the same thing. Let's say that you have an intermediate-term, high-quality corporate bond that was just issued three years ago. It paid a 4.5% coupon, but has a call date of October of this year. In this case, it's pretty likely that you're going to be given back your money next month. But since interest rates are way lower than they were three years ago, you know that company wants to refinance that debt, but the only problem is you might only get 2 to 3% for a comparable bond at this point, right? So we see that all the time with like CDs and stuff. CDs mature, somebody was getting a good rate of interest, and then they call us up and say, hey, I was getting 2% on a CD, and now, you know, my CD matured, and the bank said they're going to pay me half a percent. So that's reinvestment risk. And so, you know, three types of risk, again, we want to highlight today. First, credit risk, risk you don't get your money back. Second, interest rate risk, risk that interest rates will rise and you could see a decline in the value of the principal you have in your bonds. And third is reinvestment risk, risk that rates drop and when you have a bond that matures or is called away, you can't reinvest at as high a rate as what you were getting before.
0: This is why I love talking to the both of you every month because there are some complicated topics that I think you both do a very good job of breaking down for our listeners because I know that if I'm able to understand what you guys are saying, our listeners certainly are going to be able to. So we certainly appreciate that, Ed. Thank
2: you very much. And like we said, people typically think of bonds as the stable portion of their portfolio, which is correct. But oftentimes we find that they don't understand that there are some risks involved and it's necessary to when developing and managing a portfolio properly
0: right so you may not see the volatility that you would typically see with stocks but it is important to have bonds as part of your portfolio so alex can you explain to us why it is important to have bonds in an investment portfolio and really who should be owning them it has
1: been said jag that it is impossible to make bonds and discussions of bonds exciting and I think Ed did a fantastic job of proving that point just now. Well, thank you, sir. You're very welcome. <laughs> and, but the interesting thing is that's kind of the point of bonds. Bonds are not supposed to be exciting. They're not supposed to be uh, enticing to, uh, to investors and, and people who are anxious to talk about the latest meme stock or the latest cryptocurrency. Bonds are, by comparison, <laughs> an extremely mundane topic in the financial world. But they are important. And they make up a very important piece of diversified portfolios for for the appropriate investor. And despite all the risks that Ed mentioned just now, bonds typically are much more price stable than other types of investments. They tend to buffer a portfolio's performance against stock market volatility. And I got a couple statistics for you, because I love statistics, as you probably know. I knew you would. According to FactSet, over the last 30 years, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, which is just a very broadly diversified high credit quality bond index in the U.S., it's been 75% less volatile on an annual basis than the S&P 500. So for investors whose risk tolerance is on the moderate to low side, bonds can provide significant protection against stock market volatility. Uh, stock markets, as we know, fluctuate wildly day to day, even year to year. There have been longer, protracted downturns. Some of them are very short-lived, but the volatility is is always there. That's very rare where you have uh, a period of quiet in in the the, uh, the stock
0: markets. Just look at the beginning of the pandemic, 18 months ago. Exactly.
1: I mean, we had we had a 34% drawdown, and since the bottom in March of 2020, the market has more than doubled. Uh, the S&P 500 has, at least uh, as of a couple of days ago. So when we look at fixed income at bonds, uh, then we expect a much more stable, consistent rate of return over time. Not a guarantee that you won't lose money, not a guarantee against all volatility because prices of bonds do fluctuate, but they fluctuate usually much less than stocks do. One of the most important things about bonds is they tend to be what we call non-correlated assets. Uh, That is, they don't move in a substantially related way to stocks. There's no way to tell how one is doing when you only know what the other is doing. They can both be up at the same time. They can both be down at the same time. But there's no way to tell where one is when you only know the other. And going back over the last 30 years, uh, the same period for those volatility statistics, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index and the S&P 500 had an annual correlation coefficient of 0.066. Now, that may not mean anything to most people because who talks about correlation coefficients over coffee? Apart from me. Uh, (laughs) uh, To give you an idea, zero correlation would be perfectly non-correlated. That is absolutely no statistical relationship whatsoever. If the correlation were one then they would be perfectly correlated. Or if you know, if stocks were up 1%, bonds would be up 1%. If stocks were down 1%, bonds would be down 1%. The performance would be absolutely identical. 0. 0.066 is about as close as you can get to perfectly non-correlated without actually being perfectly non-correlated.
0: Alex, my math here is right. You're telling me that zero is completely uncorrelated, unrelated to each other. One, they're in lockstep, and in that uh, span of say, we're at about a six or a seven out of a hundred in terms of how how correlated it is. You're spot on. That's exactly what it is. That is very, very
1: low. Uh, That's what you want when you diversify. You want assets that over time you expect to rise, but you expect them to do so with different sequences. That tends to smooth out the returns of a diversified portfolio over a longer period of time. So who benefits from owning bonds in a portfolio? First and foremost, investors who are taking distributions out of an asset allocation, out of their portfolio. Investors who are taking money out should almost always have some exposure to bonds within a portfolio. They provide great liquidity. They're generally stable in price, at least compared to stocks. Investors rarely have to worry about the price of bonds when they sell them, if they sell them for cash. You have to bear in mind though bonds do fluctuate in value uh, some bonds fluctuate substantially more than others. so when you are building an asset allocation, you have to be very aware of the potential volatility within those bonds. Ed talked about credit risk. I'll use that as an example if you put together a portfolio that's fifty percent stocks and fifty percent bonds, that sounds like it's relatively well diversified and you know, moderately conservative when you just look at it on its surface. If 50% of the portfolio is made up of extremely long-term, high-yield junk bonds, you're going to have a lot more price volatility and a lot more risk than you would expect just having, you know, 50% of your bonds in high credit quality treasuries and corporates. Right. So there's a there's a very big difference between certain types of bonds. So when you are building a portfolio, you have to be very cautious about how you build those bonds in. Bonds also have generally a very solid, predictable cash flow. So Ed talked about the you know the interest payments that an investor gets. Uh, most bonds will pay interest every six months. They call it a semi-annual coupon. So you take the interest rate. Uh, if the coupon rate is 4%, you divide that by two and you get 2% of the face value every six months. Now, for high credit quality and treasury obligations, you're likely going to get that payment without interruption. Again, for riskier bonds, for high-yield bonds, that payment may not come, and that could be a problem. So you have to be careful how you allocate there. So that's the other advantage of bonds for investors. And to answer your question about who should own bonds, I think a good percentage of investors can benefit from owning bonds in their portfolio. Typically, Younger investors, say 45 and under, don't have much of a need for bonds in long-term retirement portfolios. They have a long time horizon. They can afford the volatility associated with being more aggressive. And of course, the end goal in being more aggressive is to generate a higher rate of return with those aggressive investments. So younger investors for their long-term investments generally don't need much, if any, exposure to bonds. Even younger investors, though, can use bonds in an allocation that's earmarked for a shorter-term goal. Um, let's say you're, you know, putting money away for your kid's college, uh, and you're in your 30s, and your child is, you know, relatively young, but the time horizon is shorter. If your child is, say, five, you've got 13 years until you'll need to access that money for the kid's education. As the child gets older, that time frame shrinks and shrinks. So you might be a 35 to 40-year-old investor, and that particular account should have exposure to bonds because it helps to stabilize the volatility as you get closer to that time frame. Generally, the rule of thumb is the closer you are to when you're going to need the money, the greater percentage of bonds you should have in your allocation. And one warning I have about that statement, everything I said was just true. Proximity to the need for liquidity is directly proportional to the percentage of bonds you should have, most likely, in in most cases. But when we're talking about retirement, don't confuse proximity to retirement with proximity to an immediate short-term need. Ah. Because if you retire, if you plan to retire at, say, 60, so I'm I'm 41 and I don't plan on retiring at 60, but let's say I did plan to retire at 60. 41 years old to 60, I got 19 years. So I'm still in that zone where I can afford to be more aggressive. But by the time I get to age 50, now I got a 10-year time frame until retirement. But I plan on living a lot longer after I retire. Hopefully I'll make it to 90, yeah. that'd be great. I mean, or, I mean, hopefully I'll make it longer than that, but let's use 90 because it's a nice round number. So I've got another 30 years where I'm gonna be using that money. So it's important to have a portion of your assets invested in bonds once you get to retirement but it rarely makes sense to invest everything in bonds once you get to retirement because your time frame it might be short till you need a piece of it but it's going to be a long time before you really use the vast majority of it so if you're if you're exposed you know 100% to bonds the day you retire you're likely not going to see the long-term results that you would if you were diversified and balanced. As always, I mean, there's a danger in being too conservative in one's asset allocation. We, we often talk about the risk of volatility. Volatility risk is a real thing, but there's also the real risk of not achieving the rate of return you need over time. And being conservative in your investments can cause that. So we have to make that distinction very clear when, uh, when we're building out asset allocations for clients and helping people with these decisions.
0: It really comes back to something that we hit on every single month, and we're going to keep hitting it because it's important to mention every single month, and that is the importance of having a diversified portfolio when you just hit on it, Alex. If somebody wants to come talk to you guys at Birch Run about bonds specifically or anything related to their financial future, really is worth reaching out to you guys to your brains, because I learn a lot every time I talk to you on this podcast. What are the best ways to find you at Birch Run?
1: You can always find information about us and contact information on our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com. You can email our general email box, which is info, that's I-N-F-O, at birchrunfinancial.com. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way and just give us a call here at the office. Our telephone number is 484-395-2190. We're always happy to have a conversation and we'd love to talk to you.
0: Learned a lot today, as always. Alex and Ed from Birch Run Financial, thank you both very much. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for having us, Jag.
1: Sounds like a plan, Jag. Enjoy the rest
0: of the uh, the
1: official summer. and The end
0: gets here in a few days, and we'll uh, catch up in the fall. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, not necessarily those of RGFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report is not purported to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information is been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but Raymond James is not guaranteed the foregoing Material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision. It does not constitute a recommendation. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered to be representative of the U.S. stock market. It is not possible to directly invest in an index. The Russell 2000 Index measures the performance of the 2,000 smallest companies in the Russell 3000 Index. The MSCI EFA Europe, Australasia, and Far East is a free float adjusted market capitalization index. That is designed to measure developed market equity performance, excluding the United States and Canada. The EFA consists of the country indices of 22 developed nations. U.S. government bonds and treasury bills are guaranteed by the U.S. government and, if held to maturity, offer a fixed rate of return and guarantee principal value. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against the loss. Keep in mind, not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member of FINRA SIPC. Investment Advisory Services offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc. Merch Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Merch Financial is located at 595 East Swedesford Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.